It's been a bad summer for Cincinnati restaurants. More than a handful have announced their permanent closure, and it seems like more are coming every day. In other news, a Cincinnati developer who's suing Huntington National Bank, alleging its employees allowed his business partner to perpetuate a fraudulent scheme for profit, has notched his first legal victory in the case. This is Above the Fold. Welcome to Above the Fold, the podcast from the Cincinnati Business Courier, where we bring you inside the week's biggest stories, along with interviews from newsmakers that take you behind those stories. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by Courier Editor-in-Chief Tom Demaropoulos. Hi, Tom. Hi, Andy. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. Just as a reminder, this is your last episode of Above the Fold until Monday, September 25th. We're taking a brief hiatus so that I may go on vacation. You know... We actually just uh, just recently, I ran into a folder in the wild. An actual folder, someone who is, uh, and that's our name for our fans. You know, as, you know, other podcasts have names for their their dev- devotees. We have yes. folders. Yeah, yeah. At our recent forty under forty photo reception, where we kind of do the behind, it's really a chance for that that year's honorees to to meet, get to know each other, network, and we we shoot some some content that's ultimately used in the event, the party that we throw for these people every year. And I ran into Chris Soto from Skanska, who is an honoree this year, and also introduced himself as a folder. So, Chris, thanks for listening. Excellent. We've got at least one person who claims to be a folder. Self-identified. Yeah. So it's pretty rare that a city like Cincinnati adds a new university. The last time I can think of that happening was a decade ago when the College of Mount St. Joseph became Mount St. Joseph University. Just as rare is the city losing one. And the closest to that kind of thing happening was announced last year when Hebrew Union College said that it would close its full-time rabbinical school in Clifton after 150 years of education in 2026. So... This story, another local university hasn't said it's closing, but it's it's still a pretty rare occurrence here locally. Union Institute and University did postpone the beginning of its fall 2023 class start, and it did that in the midst of multiple legal challenges. Yeah, it does not... Uh, reading kind of our story here from uh, our new reporter, Brian Planalp, this is uh, not looking like a good situation for Union Institute at this point. No, classes were supposed to start on August 28th, but just two days earlier, an email was sent to students saying that those classes would be postponed at least two weeks until September 11th, while the university, quote, addresses crucial matters related to finances and financial aid. That sounds pretty ominous to me. It does. And, you know, as, as we have in this in this story, Andy, there's a couple of different things that the university is trying to work its way through. Yeah, I mean, just two days before that email was sent, the school's landlord, which is an affiliate of Corporex, filed a breach of contract lawsuit in county court claiming Union Institute owes nearly half a million dollars after defaulting on its lease. It claims in that lawsuit that monthly payments stopped on February 17th. Now, on August 9th, an attorney for Corporex sent a notice to the university that it had three days to vacate, and as of August 25th, when Brian filed the story, Union Institute remained in default. And these financial woes, they predate that alleged default by at least a month. I mean, according to court filings, the university's president and its CFO took out a cash advance totaling about $375,000 borrowing against the school's future receipts, and for that, they agreed to pay back $17,109 per week. They made nine payments, according to court documents, before allegedly stopping on April 6th, and on February 16th, they took out a second and separate $250,000 cash advance, 
one that they owed $12,000 per week on, and they allegedly stopped paying that on March 21st. Now, both lenders sued the university, but Naples' Florida-based InstaFunders dropped its suit in May, and InstaFunders' attorney declined to comment on why. Hmm. Yes, so Andy, again, kind of looking at everything that's being put in these in these uh, lawsuits, not a good situation that Union is, is trying to work its way through. No, and according to another lawsuit, Union Institute stopped paying salaried employees on February 24th and non-exempt employees on March 10th. Now, Union, in its uh, court, own court filings, said that it, it started paying shortly after that lawsuit was filed, and it's since been referred to mediation. But in the meantime, the Ohio Department of Higher Education is auditing Union Institute's finances. Stop, let me walk you through a scenario. Let's say you own a, a cookie company, right? Okay. And you build a cookie factory to make more cookies. Following me so far? I think I've got the concept. All right. Now, let's say you build that cookie factory, hoping that people will want more cookies in the future. You don't necessarily have any cookie buyers lined up right now. You just thought, gee, people may want more cookies after this factory is done, so I'm going to build it. Now, let's say a global snack-demic happens, and people realize that cookies are just a bunch of empty calories and really probably not something that's all that good for your health. And besides, you're, you're in a bulking phase right now, and you really need to pack in as much protein into your diet as possible to put on mass. Did, did I lose you? Uh, yes, a little bit. <laughs> well, Corporex is the cookie maker in this scenario, and their billion-dollar ovation is the cookie factory, or a thinly veiled metaphor for an office building that they built on speculation. Yes, Andy. Uh, something that is, we've not seen hardly any of since the uh, pandemic is the start of any new office project, not to mention an office project that was started without any sort of tenants kind of lined up before construction began. Now, that's a pretty big swing, right? Investing a billion dollars into a, 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 an office building without any major tenants signed? Well, it's not a billion dollars just for the office. Uh, the billion dollar amount is for the entire development. Um, the office uh, is obviously a, a portion of that, uh, but it's definitely not a small uh, amount that Corporex decided to invest to say, you know, we think there will be demand for this office space, so let's let's go ahead and start with this building. Especially with the shift towards hybrid and work from home, it's led many developers to pause construction on new office in Cincinnati, and heck, some banks have even halted lending for office projects. But, you know, in this post-COVID kind of world where companies are trying to figure out the whole world of hybrid work, work from home, coming back to the office, there's been a flight to quality that we talked to on this podcast before. And that's led to, you know, many companies when they do choose to return to office or, or change their office space coming to amenity-rich facilities. Yes, Andy, what we're seeing is definitely companies have decided that if they're going to have office space, they want to have kind of the best office space they can have. Uh, so that means the newest, shiniest, uh, most amenity-laden locations. And Corporex and Ovation have benefited from that. I mean, Abby Miller, our reporter, was on hand for the ribbon cutting and put up a slideshow of the, the, the new office space, and you should check that out online. But she also reported that they've got two major tenants, and the Ovation's office space is already 60% leased. Yeah, that's kind of impressive, and it, it reminds me of the success that 3CDC has seen with the foundry in the core of uh, downtown Cincinnati. You know, that was a 150,000-square-foot building uh, that was you know, 150,000 square feet of office space that was created uh, with no tenants lined up, and they filled it, and now you've got uh, Ovation. has It's a 100,000-square-foot office building. You've got 
60,000 of it already leased. That's really impressive uh, for just, you know, cutting the ribbon on that property. Right. Yeah. And there is that 60% is taken up by two major tenants, Megacore and St. Elizabeth Physicians. So I tease this at the top, but developer Ray Schneider, head of Circle Development, has scored an early victory in the lawsuit against the Huntington National Bank. The whole lawsuit stems back from a story we've covered pretty extensively. Back in 2020, businessman Harold Sosnut pleaded guilty to one count of fraud for causing Pennsylvania-based S&T Bank to lose $59 million through a practice called check-kiting. Just what is check-kiting? Glad you asked. Back in college, I owned a kite. At, at one point, I taped a knife to it with the idea of flying it around and having other people with weaponized kites fight my kite, kind of like an airborne battle bots. I called it Knife Kite, and unfortunately, nobody else seemed to want to fly kites with me. Check kiting has nothing to do with that. <laughs> the practice involves taking advantage of the time between when a check is presented and when the account receives those funds to make it look like an account has more money than it actually does. So you present your check, the bank says, okay. You're getting X amount of money, and then before those funds clear, you write another check that would otherwise bounce had it not had you not taken advantage between that gap between the check being presented and clearing. Sosna was accused of sending more than $118 million in such checks, and he did all this while running nursing homes where Ray Schneider was his partner. In the fallout from all that, Schneider ended up declaring bankruptcy, but also suing Huntington, claiming that the bank was or should have been aware of the check kiting, but did nothing about it. The lawsuit named Huntington and 12 of its employees and executives, and Schneider says that 11 of the 12 red flags a bank should have recognized as signs of check kiting were present, were present in Sosna's activity. Huntington, they filed a motion to dismiss, saying that Schneider failed to state a claim under Ohio law and that any entity that lost money due to fraud cannot recover money from another party if the loss of money was the result of its own fraudulent activity. And they're kind of wrapping up Schneider as business partner in what this business entity was doing with this check kiting. Hamilton County Common Pleas Judge Wendy Cross denied that motion to dismiss, writing that the case can move forward. And interestingly, Judge Cross wrote that Schneider's complaint contained enough in the way of evidence of RICO violations to merit being heard at a trial. Now, RICO, you may be more familiar with on the criminal side as racketeer influence and corrupt organizations. It's usually not applied to business, but... With this ruling, if a jury does decide that the bank is liable for this, it could expand RICO to, to business organizations and civil lawsuits. Yeah, Andy, this, this could be, uh, and, and you know, this kind of, uh, the interpretation of the law here could, could really change uh, some banking, the, kind of the way banking is done, potentially. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a major opportunity to, to really create precedent in, in how this law is applied. So we'll see how this shakes out. The trial is set for September 16th, 2024. Tom, I am deathly afraid of flying. It's, it's not great because I love to travel. It's just the several hours of when I'm in the air getting from point A to point B is spent white-knuckling the armrest with, as if the, the sheer force of my will is the only thing keeping the plane aloft. Andy, I'm with you. I'm not a huge fan of flying, probably because I, I my first flight, I was very, I was old, I guess, for, well, I shouldn't say very old. Uh, I was a junior in college before I took my first flight. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah, a little bit older than, than kind of the average person. And it's it's the it's the same thing. It's the fear of not being in control, of, of feeling like I am at the mercy of this metal tube that has wings on either side of it that uh, is 30,000 feet up in the air. Right. And like, do they really 
expect us to believe that just a, a, a concave sheet of metal with a flat piece of metal underneath it, like that shape of the wing is the only thing creating loft and flight? I mean, I don't... It's science, Andy. It's... It scares me. <laughs> you know, despite that, though, I've, I've like always been really fascinated by planes, flight, and all manner of air corps, aircraft, especially the Concorde jet. You know about the Concorde? I do. Yeah, so the Concorde is a supersonic passenger jet, only 20 of which were ever made, and it traveled at nearly twice the speed of sound, or, 13, or 1,350 miles per hour. The result of that was the sonic boom that was made when the plane broke the sound barrier. So that meant most nations prohibited its use over populated areas, limiting it to transatlantic flights. But boy, was it ever good at that. Concorde could make it from New York City to Paris in just under three hours, compared to about seven and a half hours normally. That's just impressive. Let's, I mean, again, we're talking about how concave uh, metal flaps can keep it in the air. Think about what it takes to send a jet that fast. Yeah, and, and I didn't have time to fact check this before recording the podcast, so take this with a big old grain of salt. But I remember, as I told you, I was, I was always fascinated with flight and aircraft, and reading somewhere that early tests of supersonic aircraft showed that an extra burst of energy was needed to break the sound barrier and that the, the friction caused by breaking the sound barrier, if not done correctly, could cause the plane to, to really break apart. So that's, you know, always a concern. <laughs> so the Concorde could make it New York City to Paris in just under three hours, but a new supersonic jet engine, which is being tested by GE Aerospace for passenger flight would be able to do that in just about 90 minutes. Ooh. NASA announced two contracts to develop concepts and roadmaps for a Mach 4 jet, which would travel at four times the speed of sound. And GE Aerospace is working with Boeing and Georgia Institute of Technology's Aerospace Systems Design Lab on that. They're building what's called quiet supersonic technology, which renders the sonic boom into more of a sonic thump. About 60 decibels, or the equivalent of a conversation in a restaurant, which doesn't sound that bad. I, that would not bother me uh, if I were outside and heard that uh, overhead. Yeah, they're going to be flying over residential communities this year and next to get feedback on the impact. So GE is providing two engines for the project, which with the option of a third. And one of those is the X-59, which just sounds like a cool name to me. That is. Yeah. So summer's a pretty... Summer is usually a pretty strong season for restaurants. The weather is nice, allegedly. I mean, this summer's been a hazy, hot hellscape of wildfires and runaway temperatures. Uh, but people want to get, generally, want to get outdoors and, and enjoy some good food. Not so much this year. Summer 2023 has seen what feels to me, and I've covered the restaurant industry in Cincinnati for nearly a decade, has seen a larger-than-expected spate of closings. Now, most recently was 13th Street Alley, a walk-up window serving Philadelphia-style cheesesteaks in Over the Rhine. So, Andy, what do you what do you uh, attribute this to? Is, is there something you think that's happening here, or is this just a, a, this coincidental, just a, a string of, of bad luck for places? I think it's a it's a big combination of things. I think the weather actually does have something to do with it. I mean, when it's 90 degrees outside, people aren't going out and walking around over the Rhine. And so much of business and over the Rhine, shoot. I remember, I think we've called it before, the OTR roulette, where you walk around and you put your name in at a bunch of these restaurants, which don't take reservations, and you just go out and 
enjoy an adult beverage until your name gets called at one of those. I've watched that happen. Like I, we were on the patio at, uh, I think it was Bakersfield, and you would see cars pull up on Vine Street, and like three people would get out, and they'd run to three different restaurants and put their name in it, and then come back just to see. And they would say, like, oh, 20-minute wait here, 15-minute wait here, 40-minute wait here. And then they would make a decision based on those people running out to see how long the, the waits were. Yeah, and I, I think – I don't know if it's ever been a situation in Over the Rhine except for maybe one or two unicorn restaurants where you could just walk in and be seated right away, not unless, you're like, you're going right as they open at 4.30 or 5. Mm-hmm. So 13th Street Alley, it was – it first opened in 2018. It was more of a quick, affordable dining option, a walk-up window where, you know, if you're on the go and you want to grab a Philly cheesesteak or your night was winding down and it's 2 a.m. and you're leaving the bars and you need a bite to eat – uh, it's something, something that can sate that hunger, but it's it's not the only one. Uh, just a little less than a week before that, Haru, a Korean restaurant, also announced its permanent closure downtown. And that I've, I've been to that place, and it served excellent Korean food. But I think that uh, you know we talked about the the heat and the temperature keeping people away from downtown. This hybrid work schedule or work from homes also let a lot of restaurants to suffer people who rely on the business lunch crowd yeah that's i think that's got to be a factor because uh you know we're down here you and i are down here for sometimes five days a week right now and there's definitely a difference in the way downtown feels monday and friday versus tuesday wednesday thursday like you it feels like it used to on tuesday wednesday and thursday monday and friday don't have that same level of energy that same amount of activity walking on the street no it's it's so much easier to find a parking spot on monday or friday and today thursday i forgot my my lunch and ended up going to a cafe for lunch and i think like the entirety of a single office was in front of me in line <laughs> leading me to wait for about 15 minutes before my order was filled but it was a damn good sandwich so i'm not complaining but it's not just downtown either. I mean, in Clifton, Fort Entertainment Group, or probably better known as 4EG, they closed their cocktail bar, the St. Clair. And in Covington, that same group closed its Keystone Bar and Grill on Greenup Street. And then in, in uh, College Hill, fast casual Puerto Rican restaurant Mash Roots closed its location after a couple of years open. And then, you know, back to Over the Rhine, Copper and Flame, which was a, a bar that you could get an RFID card when you first checked in and use that to fill your own beverages at, a, I think, 52 taps of beer and then even more of wine and cocktails. That announced that it was closing, too, after almost two years in business. There is a silver lining, though. I mean, the restaurant industry is indefatigable. Like uh, Daniel Rank, the owner of Senate and Abigail Street, he just opened Golden State Tacos in Terrace Park. It's a California, I think they call it Cali Mex, but inspired by his time in California, it's a taco and margarita restaurant. And then skipping back to downtown, and this will be of special interest to my wife, but Almost Vegan Lounge, a restaurant that is specializing, as the name implies, in vegan food, but also it's one of these places where for every dish they will have a vegan version. So if they have pulled pork on the menu, they also have pulled jackfruit. Uh, That is opening on Court Street in this area that 3CDC has really put a lot of time and effort into revitalizing to kind of bridge downtown and over the Rhine. Yeah, two two uh, very cool additions coming to uh, to the region. Uh, for me, I think I'll definitely be trying to check out Golden State because one of my favorite things to do is take the family over to uh, the bike trail and hop in, you know, either in Milford or uh, down at uh, Fifty West uh, or all the way up to you know Loveland. 
and that that would be a close drive from there to stop in a terrace park and grab some tacos. And they're going to have a trailer out in the parking lot that's going to serve Mexican shaped ice. So good, good sweet treat after biking. perfect for the kids. Yeah. This week on the podcast, we have Tom Fernandez, CEO of local architecture firm Elevar Design. Tom is half the duo that created MIVI, a new local organization that aims to be the national standard for measuring companies' social impact. It seems like in recent years, companies across the U.S. have added roles focused on three-letter acronyms like DEI and ESG, standing for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and environmental, social, and corporate governance, respectively. Yet there hasn't really been a universal yardstick by which to measure the impact these companies have in those areas. MIVI hopes to be that yardstick, much like LEED is the national measure for energy efficiency in new construction. MIFI is partnering with the Business Courier for a panel discussion about those efforts on September 19th. This is Tom Fernandez on Above the Fold. It's uh, a little more subtle, a little lower, right? Lower. It's like when your kids are like, and you're trying to psych them out. Isn't there something you want to report to me, kids? <laughs> something you haven't told me. Yes, when you already know that something has happened and you're yes. just seeing if they are going to be the ones to let you know, like, yeah, I did break that lamp. Well, you know, years <laughs> from now, I, I still try. I, my kids are all in their 20s, and one is uh, upper 20s. I still try to try it and see if anything comes out, but they've, they're a lot smarter now. <laughs> one should hope. The dad voice? Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't know I was getting training for that by doing a podcast. That's right. <laughs> so... Tom, one, one thing that kind of struck me from the story that we that Chris Ruderick wrote for us on Mivi is the fact that uh, the Minority Business Enterprise program, uh, that, that you're planning on letting that lapse, that it's not, not doing for what you thought or hoped that it would do. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell me a bit about that. I mean, uh, my understanding is the goal for those kind of programs is to help minority-owned businesses do more business, but it doesn't sound like it's working that way. Well, um, it is uh, true that we are moving away from it. Uh, number one, it's very expensive for businesses to get certified because uh, it's it's just not one central certification point. You have multiple government agencies, private businesses that all have their own independent certification processes. So what, what you're needing is one full-time person just to handle the certification work. Mm. And that gets very expensive. Um, and what we've looked at is, at the end of the day, how much has it impacted our business? It's probably less than 1%. So that's why we're getting away from it. There's also certain programs uh, that are out there that really aren't uh, – conducive to growth for example the state of ohio does have an mbe program but what they push is their edge and what they measure is edge uh, certification which um, includes a lot of economically disadvantaged individuals um, which sounds great but when you're applying for a job you don't get any points Hmm. if you're the lead so if you want to drive you don't get any points um, you only get uh, points uh, recognized if you're a subcontractor. So that, in a, in a, in a sense, is very telling of, of what the program's about, and it's not a very positive uh, message that they're giving to minority businesses when uh, they go after those jobs. 
So for that reason, uh, sometimes you have to make a, a stand and hopefully it, by leaving the programs um, that aren't really working well, then hopefully people start to ask the questions, why? Why is it important to change? So I, I know MIVI, the, the group that uh, you've started with, Eric Kearney, is, is not seeking to replace that designation. But tell me a bit about the origin story of MIVI and, you know, what, what factors made you guys feel like this is something that, that the world needs right now? The world needs a lot, right? <laughs> so um, this is only intended to uh, perhaps fix or at least measure um, one part of it. The um, goal is that it become a tool that allows uh, companies to better understand what their social impact is, what, the, what their footprint. The, what we realized a long time ago, uh, what I started realizing is I started hearing how companies are, are doing great. Uh, what they're doing for the community, what they're uh, doing for minority businesses. But yet, when we try to get an appointment to go see some, get in the door to see some of these companies, it was almost impossible. And when we did get an appointment, uh, it was really, hey, this is it. This is the end. Uh, congratulations, you've gotten to this. And it was like, no, we, we need to get to the point where we actually have work coming in. Mm-hmm. So started uh, comparing notes and started to really understand where companies were spending dollars and realized that there was a lot of dollars leaving the communities. And in other words, it's, uh, most companies were using uh, purchasing of big bulk items, chemicals, utilities, uh, furniture, uh, as an example, um, it, through minority vendor um, in order to get some high numbers but there weren't producing jobs here like here locally in the communities that they're serving so we uh we saw uh that really there weren't as many architects as many uh attorneys uh, uh being hired um because they're all service providers and and those jobs do stay locally. Construction is is one uh, area that it does stay local, which is great, but even products, uh, which represent about 55% of the the construction costs, aren't necessarily sourced regionally. So Mm -hmm. what MIVI starts to do is to ask the companies, should we be measuring these dollars or should we better be measuring jobs created locally? And that's, that's just one area that we really try to educate. Um, by creating this standard, companies are, you know, all of a sudden um, are able to have a common measurement tool, which, uh, so uh, our goal is not to necessarily measure one company against the other. Our goal is to have companies commit to growth improvement over the next two years. Um, the information is confidential. Uh, the only thing that's public is that they are MIVI certified, um, but then to use those numbers to improve. And what we demand uh, to stay in the program is a 10% increase uh, every other year in, in the total of points. And we hit a lot of different areas, um, both internal and external, um, that cover you know what's your C-suite look like, what's your management team, 
um, besides uh, where we started and briefly touched upon, which was the, the minority spend dollars you're consulting and what, what are you purchasing. Uh, so it goes beyond that. Um, it also goes into, and we're, we have uh, questions that measure environmental impact in, in the communities, uh, uh, other uh, questions in terms of, you know, what's your, what's your product and how well does that reflect your customer base. So that's just one. And it's the idea here, Tom, really that what gets measured gets improved? Yes. Not, not only is it easier to uh, then give definition to that improvement and, and concentrate on areas, but it's also an empowerment tool for those that are trying to push uh, progress because right now they're taking a personal risk. If you're a middle manager or if you're a new employee in charge of the DI pro uh, process for your company, you're at risk because you're, you're wanting to push, hey, have we considered hiring these companies out there that are local, that are minority, that you could really do a good job or, you know, but there's a risk anytime you bring somebody in. Um, so what we try to do by having this tool is, is to give them ammunition, uh, let them use it as an education piece. So from the C-suite down, down to the lower, uh, all, you know, levels of, of the organization, they can understand what, what's important, what the values are, uh, that really will create some improvement, uh, impact your community. So how did you choose the areas on which to focus on what you want to measure because the idea of social impact it seems like a pretty wide net that can cover a lot of different things well we started uh the process uh, a few years ago and it was very focused on just your minority spend dollars hmm. but we expanded it the more research we we hired a team of researchers writers um, to um, investigate the, um, the demand um, to uh, define what we should be measuring. And as a result, that's where we came up with um, all these different, different areas. Um, never would have imagined that's where we would have ended up uh, because, uh, like I say, when we first started, it was, it was, hey, this is what's been our experience. How could we improve it for the next generation? Because that's really what this is about. It's my runway is short compared to uh, the impact we could have for, for the next business owners and um, the younger uh, new companies that are starting off. So, I guess, go ahead. Hey. I was just going to say, so what are some of those key areas that you, I mean, you already mentioned some of them, but what are the key areas you're, you're focusing on and, and why, why were those selected? I mean, what makes those the most important things in MIVI's eyes to look at when measuring this, this kind of social impact for companies? Well, at, at the end of the day, it's what has the greatest impact in, in your community and those who live in the community, period. And it's those uh, which includes, you know, uh, the, the pay scale, equity issues, um, it, it includes um, employee benefits. You know, we, we have questions on all those aspects. Um, but we want to build a better community. This is all about community build. And, Tom, one of the things that I think that uh, you and I have talked about is that these areas, it's not just the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do for business as well. Mm-hmm. 
Well, what we're finding, especially over uh, the COVID years, uh, we, we, we find that a lot of individuals are starting to reprioritize where they work, what, what their values are, and how that reflects, you know, how they want to make sure that the companies that employ them, that they reflect those, those similar values. So um, there, there's a lot of movement, um, staff movement, uh, that isn't always dependent on salary. There's so many other factors that people are considering. Um, so that, that in itself, um, if a company being MIVI certified represents the value system of the company and what they're trying to do, that helps in not only retention but also in attraction. So it is good business. It seems almost like there's a generational shift there. I, I know that. I can remember reading about and reporting on kind of this idea that a lot of employees will do tours of duty at a company. It's no longer so much that you start working right out of college at one company, you spend your entire career there and, and, and retire with a gold watch. It seems like employees are a lot more mercenary and companies, in addition to having jobs to provide them, also do have to, as you kind of said, line up with the values of an employee. Is that more of a, a generational thing as, as millennials, oh, I guess millennials, millennials are getting into our 40s now, and uh, Gen Z are, are becoming a bigger factor in the workplace? Well, I can only speak uh, for the older uh, uh, generation looking back, and and I actually am different. I grew up, and, and I kept hearing, oh, I, I just don't understand this new generation. I'm actually excited because I think that they they are asking the right questions. They're they're demanding more. They're de- they're looking at the bigger picture. They're looking um, for equity. They're looking um, to really uh, help and and community build much more than my generation was and and others that immediately followed. So, and I'm last of the boomers, a couple years uh, following me, um, but. I'm excited uh, about what their values. Um, yes, you know, are they uh, dedicated? Um, are they going to keep all their money and all their investments in the same company that they worked all their lives for? No, but we're we're better for it. I believe we companies themselves have to be smarter and have to be more competitive, and we're only going to put a better uh, better product out there uh, by by uh, increasing diversity and, and bringing in more uh, fresh views. So you've already got a, a couple of pretty high-profile companies in, in the region signed up to, to pilot this. Who, who signed on so far, and what was your pitch to them? How did you get them on board with MIVI? Well, there's, we find that certain companies, or at least uh, we, we had a little easier because initially because uh, we reached out to construction companies because they've been dealing with a lot of the issues. And again, they're keeping a lot of their dollars local. So they're ahead of the game in many ways. So that became easier. But companies like Turner, 
uh, construction, they've been having this conversation and they care about the environment and others, you know, Skanska and, and um, Triversity, Megan Construction, they, they've all been in this space um, for a while. Some other companies, like uh, we have a law firm that uh, has signed on and, and they're looking and for it and they're wanting it to drive change because they realize that there might be only 2% of attorneys who actually are minorities. So they're saying, well, how can we compete better for them? And then better, bigger picture is, how can we bring more students interested in law and in their business? Um, how can how could we spread knowledge, uh, the word out that it's a good profession? Uh, please join us. So that's that's what we're we're seeing. We actually have uh, um, in architecture. It's a little harder because you know some of the best of the best students that go to universities like Howard and so on. They're being recruited by by law law firms and you know the healthcare providers to go to medicine and and there's a great return. Salaries are much higher than they are in the design business. Um, so we actually have a, a a little harder task uh, to to bring uh, awareness of the profession uh, out there. So, Tom, one of you know Mivy's goals is uh, it's kind of a lofty one. It's it's to be the national standard. Why, why can a, you know a group in Cincinnati be the one to lead the way on this? Well, a lot a lot of uh, a lot of ideas do originate in the Midwest, and if we were uh, organization out of New York, nobody would ever ask us, why New York? Um, so um, it came, the, the idea originated here, the discussions, uh, we're making the investment. Sometimes there's clarity when you stand back, and, and hopefully uh, the Midwest, uh, you'll find that uh, there's a lot of good stuff that comes from here. So uh, we did, we, we were thinking, well, how are we going to roll this out? And uh, and at, at the end of the day, it was like, yeah, why not? Why not in Cincinnati? So it seems like the creation of Mivy, and, and forgive me, it, it may predate this, but grew up alongside a lot of the social upheaval that happened in, in, in the, the rising prominence of the Black Lives Matter movement following the, the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, it seems like companies across the country, companies in Cincinnati were adding, you know, chief diversity officers or a lot of DEI positions. But then it seems like since then, maybe not a lot has happened in that realm. Is this something that Mivy is seeking to address or maybe just give people a better benchmark or metric to measure their efforts? Well, sometimes change happens because there's this perfect storm. There's all these uh, different uh, whether there are opportunities or situations that occur, um, we we've been at this now uh, for several several years uh, with the idea, the formation. What what is it that we want to create, and then it's actually doing the research and and getting to where we are. It just happens that I think the world is waking up and saying, hey, there, you know, things aren't fair, things aren't being measured. You know, there needs to be a greater opportunities. There needs to be safety. There needs to be real thought 
given to uh, being and uh, creating equity. So I think we're at the right time, uh, right place to uh, make it happen. Um, the the uh, market itself is unmeasured. You could call yourself a DEI expert, and there really isn't a, a program out there. There there are universities, you know, scrambling now to create programs, and um, but um, it's all new, a new path that we're we're forging together. Uh, it's um, has there been uh, companies taking the easy step and push that easy button? the right message out there or hire and that's it is that is that all there is does that mean that you're a good socially conscious organization company and the answer is no you have to go beyond it you have to really analyze yourself and understand educate um, your leaders educate the decision makers what's important And, and it's difficult it's you know I will tell you um, a story that we we got into, and we're fortunate. Years ago, um, we had an opportunity to pursue one large company here in Cincinnati, and I wanted to make it a focus. I, I want to say I want to work for this company. It's a large company, and and how how could we be in the Cincinnati market and not be serving them? So um, knocked on a lot of doors, didn't get anywhere, um, and then. I had heard, well, you just don't know our way of doing business. I said, okay, great. So we ended up going out and hiring four individuals that all they did their whole lifetime is work for this one company uh, as, as a service provider and um, thought, okay, that's, that's the answer. I'm going to get some jobs. No. It still didn't happen. And I, I was like, wow. So I, wrote, I hand wrote a note to senior VP at the organization and I, I I said hey you know we're we're willing to invest we're we're we are investing in chasing work uh, with your company but I must be missing something there must be something in the DNA of your organization that I'm just not understanding why is it that we're not even getting a meeting to discuss what we could do I'd love if we could just grab coffee or lunch and wrote um Wrote the letter, sent it off, and I got busy. It was about four weeks um, afterwards where I got a phone call from a project manager um, saying, hey, I want to set up a meeting, and then this is who you're going to be meeting. I'm like, well, great. All right. I'm, thank you. Didn't really know because those four individuals we had hired, all they were doing is trying to get in, get in, and get in. So I assumed that the uh, progress we made was through one of them. We came in, and it was the strangest meeting. It wasn't a meeting about who we are, but it was a meeting about, hey, these are the projects you're going to get. It was day one on the job, and it was about an hour and a half, and it was with this one gentleman who was the boss's boss's boss. You know, so it was was a great meeting. Um, I was walking out, and I stopped. I turned, and I said, how is it today that we got this opportunity? And he smiled went to the back of his desk, and he grabbed the note that I had written to one of the senior VPs. And on there, she wrote, get them in. Hmm. My point in telling you that story is that it takes um, coverage 
um, from the C-suite many times to create change. They have to understand the impact uh, of their actions and their policies, and they have to be actively involved. So MIVI is, is here to help educate them. Hey, this is your, the value system. Even as much as uh, we, we even measure their giving, where, where you're giving dollars uh, going towards. Our goal is, is, is to educate, give ammunition to those trying to create this change and better, better knowledge to those who are imp- impacted. So, Yes, yeah, so as part of that, Tom, we'll be having an event uh, coming up. The Business Courier uh, is working with MIVI on a, uh, a panel discussion that will be on the morning of September 19th. Uh, I'll be moderating that. Uh, you'll be on the panel as well, and you'll be joined by uh, Stephanie Smith from Fifth Third Bank, Jeff Aludo from Hamilton County, the uh, county's administrator, and Eric Ellis, who's president and CEO of Integrity Development. So I'm looking forward to that conversation as well. It'll be exciting, and I am awed by the other three on the panel. Me, I'm not so impressed, but... <laughs> They, 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 they are, are true uh, individuals, uh, individuals that are truly making a change. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Above the Folds is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demeropoulos. The podcast is produced and edited by me, and our theme music was written by Dylan McCartney. Come back next week for another edition of Above the Fold. Above the Fold.